handsome bunch of folks today, uh, all in your Easter best this morning. So excited to be able to have you with us this morning. The title of the message today is called New Life Chapter One, because as we go back to this period in history, almost 2,000 years ago, and I say almost because the crucifixion was timed somewhere around 27 A.D., Jesus was actually born about 4 B.C., if that makes, I know it doesn't make any sense, but the calendar has been messed with and adjusted over the years, and so we're at the point now, we're just about eight or so years away from it being an actual even two millennia, 2,000 years ago, but this is an amazing celebration. It's a festival. It's a party. It's, it's the declaration that God has started fresh. It's the beginning of a whole new creation week that we commemorate. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory Church. It is truly an honor to have each and every one of you with us. I hope that you'll come back and visit with us again here at Victory. We are thrilled because there are a lot of wonderful good churches in the West Memphis Marion area, and it is our, our, our privilege, our blessing to be able to have you with us this morning and hope you make yourselves at home, maybe found some coffee today, enjoyed our worship. Going to have a little bit more of that toward the end of the service this morning. This one is, the, the service today is structured a little differently than we normally do. We held off our communion on the first Sunday of April, waiting until today to receive the Lord's table. And just let me say, this is a, a little bit of a preemptive preparation for that this morning. We're excited to have you. You do not have to be a formal member of Victory Church to receive the Lord's table with us. We practice here at Victory what's called open communion. There, now, there is a restriction on that open communion, that is that Though you don't have to be an official member of Victory Church, you need to be a member of the body of Christ. You need to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Otherwise, you're taking something and celebrating something that is absolutely meaningless to you, celebrating the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And today, as we celebrate that, it's in commemoration of his resurrection out of the tomb. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise this morning. Today, we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1, and then 3 and 4. The title of the message is called New Life, chapter 1. How many of you are thankful for new life? Yeah. Ever had a second chance? Ever had an opportunity to be able to start, a, start fresh, begin again, uh, have an opportunity to be able to really do what the, the scripture is talking about, where a new life, a new opportunity this morning we're here to celebrate that, commemorate that. The scripture reads from the book of 1 Corinthians, the letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. He says, let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. Everybody say, good news. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins... Just as the scriptures said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. Let's bow our hearts together for a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful today for the unspeakable gift that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. There are no human words that can even begin to express the amazing gift of God that came down from heaven, the bread of God that has fed the souls of men and women. God, thank you today for a drink from the water of life. You've given that to us freely. 
Salvation, eternal life is not earned or deserved, but we celebrate the fact that you've given us the faith that we exercise, and by grace we receive the gift of eternal life. All because you died and were buried and you were raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. I acknowledge before you that I desperately need you more than I've ever needed you before. Lord, we need you as a congregation. Holy Spirit, get in the middle of these words. Be my thoughts. Lord, be the ears and the eyes and the hearts of your listeners. Penetrate, O oh God, some of our ideas, Lord, that need to change and be transformed. Penetrate, O oh God, our brokenness. Penetrate our wound. Lord, the things that separate us, that keep us from recognizing that you are our Father, you're our Creator. Lord, we pray for a transformation by the Holy Spirit today in the hearts and lives of some individuals here that will hear the gospel, though they may have heard it their whole lives, but today they really, truly will hear it for the first time, and things will change. Transform us today by the Holy Spirit. We'll be careful to give you praise, and all of God's people said, Amen. It says, the good news that I preached to you before that was passed on to me. Once more, everybody say good news. That is the literal translation of the word gospel. The distinction between a living relationship with a Christ who is alive and a religion that can be formed around this particular historical figure is that news is something that has already taken place. Religion, at best, offers advice. Stop doing that. Start doing this. Get all of your ducks in a row. And then possibly you might be able to enjoy the favor of God. That's the idea that religion puts forth. But news is something different. It is not advice on how you can improve your life. News is the statement of a fact of an event that has already taken place in time and space and history. Everybody say, it's already taken place. News is a statement of something that has occurred. The gospel is not advice. It is not religious uh, one-upsmanship. It is, it is not religious inspiration or motivation. The good news, the gospel, is about a living relationship with one who already historically has died, was buried, and was resurrected for you according to the scriptures. So there's a difference in the good news of the gospel and the advice that religion sometimes, especially churchianity in the Bible Belt South, in the Delta, wants to put on us. Look, look at your neighbor and say, they're not the same thing. One thing I want you to grasp this morning, if you don't get anything else, I want you to grasp this one thing. We will, we will revisit it throughout the message today. Look at the screen and read it with me, please. The bloody cross on Good Friday and the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday are the bookends of the Christian faith that have changed everything. Once more, like you really mean it, the bloody cross on Good Friday and the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday are the bookends of the Christian faith that have changed everything. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word and all of God's people said. This morning as I open, I talk about the obvious. Two days ago, we celebrate what we call Good Friday. One youngster asked the parent one time, what is so good about Good Friday if a man died? You know, that's a really logical and reasonable question. And that doesn't really come into view until you see it in light of Resurrection Sunday. The Roman Empire is famous for utilizing an execution method known as crucifixion. As a matter of fact, 
when you read the, the word crucified or crucifixion in the Bible, you can easily substitute the word execution or executed or execute depending on the tense of the word crucify or crucified or crucifixion because it was a form of execution that the Roman Empire under the leadership of Caesar who had declared himself to be literally the son of the gods, plural, little g, in the flesh, the Lord, the kurios, Caesar is kurios. That was a political statement declaring that this representation of God in the flesh, of the gods of the Roman Empire, the gods of, of the mythological panoply of, of, of Jupiter and, and all of the various forms that were supposed to be carrying after the creation that they together had brought under the leadership of the big God. And I'll be honest with you this morning, I'm a little foggy. Sometimes I confuse which one is the Greek mythological God. I think that's Zeus. And then I think Jupiter is the Roman mythological leader of all of this. And so Caesar was declared to be the son of all of the powers that be over the Roman Empire. When, when Christians, after the resurrection, began to be called that in the, in the book of Acts, literally in the New Testament city of Antioch, they were referred to as Christians because they were people who were demonstrating the living power of Christ in them and among them. They were living testaments. They were uh, the, the attestation, like someone who's, who goes on a witness stand and attests to the fact that this is a person of character or this event happened in such and such a way. They were living witnesses of the living Christ. And so they were called Christians. And their statement of affirmation of Jesus was that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that was a statement in opposition to everything that Caesar claimed to be. And you can realize that in that day and time that everything that the, the Roman Empire attempted to do was to quell or squelch the power of the rebel voice or the influence of the revolutionary leader, the one who would... Uh, potentially rise up and, and, and lead a group of people out from under the influence of Caesar. And this Jesus was probably the most amazingly powerful attempt at that that had ever occurred. It had happened throughout the history of the development of the Roman Empire and crosses literally littered the countryside, putting together of two timbers together in this shape of a cross. Execution had taken place over various empires to quell rebel voices. But during this particular period of history, the most gruesome, the most heinous, the most painful method of execution, literally it's not just being exposed to the elements and folk many times don't realize that it was complete, it was a complete indignity to the one who was being crucified. We have very nicely, uh, in a sense, for... Uh, modesty's sake, have put a loincloth on our Savior who hung on the cross. But what you don't realize so many times is that he actually hung there completely naked. All of the men and people who were crucified in those days literally lost every stitch of dignity that they possibly had, just hanging there in the open, everything exposed. He hung on that cross. It was a bloody spectacle because he had been bruised and beaten and striped and crowned with thorns and pierced to inside and spat upon and lied upon. One of his own had denied his very existence or the, his association with him, better said. 
another of his own who was trusted to take care of the finances, the treasurer, Judas, by the way, whose name comes from the, from the Hebrew word Judah, which means praise, was one who sold his, his place among these beloved 12 disciples and he sold the Savior, the king of the world, into the hands of the Romans for 30 pieces of silver. He betrayed him. There is a praise that betrays. We can go through religious motions and yet not have in our hearts what we declare and we can be people that betray the very one who died in our place and for us. It was a bloody spectacle. It was one that looked like every bit or speck of hope had been robbed from the hopeful, the people that followed this Jesus, this, this missionary voice, this, this not certain but yes probably God man. They, 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 they really, they were back and forth. Could you possibly be Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah that they had longed for? Every promise in the Old Testament leaned forward in anticipation for one that would come. And no man, now that we look back through the filter of the resurrection, no man in history has ever fulfilled every single last prophecy. Over 300 of them in the Old Testament, 30 major ones of when he would be born, where he would be born, to the family that he would be born. Things that would happen in his lifetime, the, the occurrences historically that he would affect, uh, the time that he would die, literally how he would die. It was, it, was, it was prophesied that he would die a cruel death as a suffering servant. And we talked last week about the offense of the cross, the scandalon. One, one New Testament passage in 1 Corinthians declares that the preaching of the cross to the Jew is scandalous. And it's offensive to us because... We are looking for a Savior that is triumphant. We are looking for one who has more power than the powers that be in the Roman Empire that has held us back. The religious establishment was looking for a Savior that would make Israel great again. And I'll leave that alone. They were looking for one that would protect their way of life and protect their power and protect their prestige and their money. And if you'll think about this, Jesus was never threatened by. He, he, as a matter of fact, every sinner, every broken person, human, man or woman, every broken human ever in the presence of Jesus never gave him a problem. They were longing to be set free from the things they struggle with. It was only the religious people that had a problem with who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Let us think about that this morning as we protect our traditions that become more powerful to us than the presence of a living Savior. And so he hung on a cross in a bloody spectacle on Good Friday. He uttered some very powerful words, which are a whole series in themselves. Every phrase is a message. But by 3 o'clock in the afternoon, after having endured three mock trials all night long before various political and religious leaders He's nailed to a wooden cross and he's suspended between heaven and earth, hanging between two thieves, two common thugs. Something didn't register in the minds of faithful Hebrews, though they'd rehearsed this every year for millennia. Once they were delivered from Egypt, they had taken the hyssop and they had dipped it in the blood of the lamb and they'd struck the lentils of the doorpost, forming two crosses on both sides and above the doorpost, 
a cross that was higher than the others in the very same way that we see depicted three crosses on a hill and the middle one being taller. It was emblazoned. It was burned into their thinking, but yet somehow they managed to miss that. That a reigning king could also be a suffering servant. The lion of Matthew, the king of the Jews, could also be the great ox that bore the sin bearer of the world. That's Jesus. I, 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 I want to share a quote from a favorite author of mine, Dr. R.C. Sproul, says, The most obscene symbol in human history is the cross. Think about it. We're wearing a symbol of execution around our necks. It would be the same thing as if you wore a little electric chair or a gas chamber or a lethal injection syringe and you put them on your ears, ladies, or you had it on a dangling on a little charm bracelet or maybe on, a, on, on some form of jewelry that you might wear around your neck, brothers. So when we wear a cross, the, this, this symbol of the, the, the ugliest period of history, yet in its ugliest it remains the most eloquent testimony to human dignity because it shows us that every individual born on the planet is worthy of the dignity that God loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die for us and in our place and to pay for our sin. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. Good Friday can't be summed up with any word better than the word violence. It was a bloody spectacle and it was a violent death. By 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus had breathed his last breath, suspended between heaven and earth, and he had cried out in the Greek, Tetelestai. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. It is final. It is done. It is over with. You know, it is amazing to me that in the 21st century, some literally 20 millennia after this event took place, this hinge point of history that everything in the world in terms of the history of our world is all judged based on this center point, this point of reference, this, this God-man, this Jesus, this this potential Messiah that they had hoped for. This hinge point of history. He didn't come at the beginning. He didn't come at the end, but he chose to come in the middle of history so that everything would be in reference to him. Even when humanistic historians attempt to remove B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord, please don't say after death. That is not what that means. Anno Domini is the... The, the, the phrase which translates in the year of our Lord, in the year of his birth. Okay, it's not after death. It's in the year of his birth. And in an attempt to erase the influence of Christ from history, they've changed it from A.D. in the year of his birth, literally to C.E. or the common era. And then B.C. before Christ now has become B.C.E., before the common era. But then you, all you have to do is ask one simple question. What signifies the common era? the coming of Christ in the Roman Empire. So it's still, he is the center point, the hinge point of history. Everything is in reference to his coming. Prior to, longing for the one that would come. Now we look back to a finished work that took place on the cross. Challenges take place year after year, decade after decade, century after century, although a lot of that has changed since the opening of the 19th century and for sure the 20th century because the 
outrageous amount of archaeological evidence that has been dug up to prove the historical accuracy of the Bible, it is irrefutable. We have more, uh, literally, identifiable evidence to prove that the Bible is the Word of God and this character named Jesus not maybe, maybe or maybe not existed, but he really came and he lived and he died and he rose again. Easter is a time to celebrate. I'm not going to talk about potential theories on how he actually didn't die, but he swooned, or all these various resuscitation theories that he wasn't really dead in the grave, but he's just sort of, you know, how he got all that cleaned up and all those, all those outrageous uh, bruises and wounds and open cuts from having been striped with a cat of nine tails. It's ridiculous the stuff that human man, humanistic thinking, tries to do to pull away from the validity of the fact that we have a Savior who died for us and who rose out of the grave. Come on, somebody. There is this much evidence that proves that there was a historical figure by the name of Julius Caesar. The evidence that proves Jesus came and lived and died and rose again would be in relation to this for Julius Caesar, it would fill up 20 rooms this size for Jesus. Come on, somebody, put your hands together. The bloody cross on Good Friday and the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday are the bookends of the Christian faith that have changed everything. The amazing thing to me about recognizing the violence of Good Friday is that every one of us at some point in our lives has endured the violence of brokenness. Folk who have hurt us, disappointments that have come because our hopes were dashed against the stone of reality. Tragedy that took place that we never saw coming. Circumstances that have happened in our lives. And to think about the violence that Jesus endured for us. He took away everything that separated us from the Father. It was nailed to the cross and buried in the ground. And I just want to say to you, if you're enduring a period of violent frustration and disappointment and hurt and anger and brokenness, it may be Friday in your life, but look at your neighbor and tell him right now, it may be Friday in your life, but Sunday's coming. Hear what I'm saying. It may be Friday in your life, but Sunday's coming. Hallelujah. And then we leave... The violence of Good Friday was a Jewish historian who had no affinity for Jesus, was just true to the report of what was taking place during that particular time, says that even as the Bible declares it, that the, the veil of the temple, six inches thick, was rent. It was torn into from the top to the bottom. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, and he, he breathed his last breath, a cloud of darkness rolled in over the place that lasted for hours. And the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. And God was saying, there is no more separation. Come on in here with me where I am. Because my son just paid the price. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records that that took place. Another voice that confirms what we believe is not just a nice myth. It's not just equivalent with Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. But it's the reality of a Savior who died for us. You roll out of the violence of Good Friday into the silence of Holy Saturday. 
silence of Holy Saturday because it's those moments, it's those, it's those six months to a year after I lost my wife and I was not ready for that to happen, never saw it coming. It's the silence of isolation. It's the silence of aloneness. It's the silence of pain that is indescribable. It's the silence of God in those moments that you go, God, where are you? Can you hear me? Are you even out there? How did this happen in my life? The hopes of a whole generation of people seemed to be dashed because no longer was he even hanging on the cross breathing, but he had been taken down and placed into a tomb and death had been declared over this one who was supposed to change the world. It was the silence of God. But what I want to tell you is the silence of God never indicates the absence of God. The silence of Holy Saturday, Max Lucado, one of my favorite writers, maybe Lucado, I, don't, I never do know which the way to say it. He says it this way, the day between the struggle and the solution, the question and the answer, the offered prayer and the answer thereof. Some of you are in struggles right now and you've prayed and you've not yet gotten an answer. And it seems almost like God is silent in your life. And I want to say to you right now, it may be Saturday in your life, but hang on because Sunday's coming. Look at your neighbor and tell him right now. Say, say, neighbor, it may be Saturday in your life and God may be silent, but Sunday's coming. Come on, say it like you mean it. Sunday's coming. The bloody cross on Good Friday and the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday are the bookends of the Christian faith that have changed everything. My last point this morning, and I'm finished, is the explosion of Resurrection Sunday. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the good news, the gospel, is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line and he was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Say that with me. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was shown to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. There was no denying. It was irrefutable evidence. It was undeniable. And if I had time to read to you this morning, just as we continue to look through the rest of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he appeared to the women first and then to James and the other disciples and then crowds that were larger. And then the scripture says he even appeared to 500. There were so many irrefutable, undeniable eyewitness accounts of the fact that this Jesus who died now was alive and was resurrected. And, and you know what? Was human enough to sit down and eat with the disciples, but he was spirit enough to pass through a wall and a locked door. Now, I don't know how to explain that, but I know that Jesus now is in a whole different kind of body. Come on, somebody say amen. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that he is the firstborn of the new creation. Revelation 1.4 says he is the firstborn from the dead. Romans 8.29 says... Those he did foreknow, he also did predestine to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Colossians, he's the firstborn uh, of the new creation. Revelation, he's the firstborn from among the dead. Romans 8, 29, he's the firstborn among many brethren. Firstborn literally means he is first in time and first in place. He's the first to do it and now he is preeminent over everyone else. He is the prototokos, is the Greek word, like a prototype. Literally, he is the, God rolled him out 
and it was the demonstration of the beginning of a whole new Israel of God. This is the first new creation man. And guess what? When you were born again, you became the, not the second or the third, because there was 120 born on the day of Pentecost. And Peter went out like a madman preaching that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him up because death could not hold him. And 3,000 were born that day. A couple days later, he's preaching again, and 5,000 more were born. And we've rolled down 20 centuries that millions have been born. Yes, even billions have been born into the kingdom of God. But your number is in there somewhere, and God knows exactly when you came in. He's the firstborn among many brethren. Folk who are made in his image, made in his likeness. And God's begun a good work in you and he will not quit it until he is finished. N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, he's an Anglican in the Church of England, spirit-filled man of God. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project. Not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to, com to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. That's what we've learned to pray. Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Come on. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Right in the middle of your problem. Right in the middle of your circumstance. It may be Friday in your life, but hang on, because God's Sunday is coming into your life. It may be Saturday in your life where the silence of God is so loud around you, it's shouting. But don't quit, don't give up, because hope never quits. And if we have anything, we have hope. Because Jesus was raised for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Back up a few verses to verse 17 and he says, in the, in the message it says, He that is joined to the Messiah gets a fresh start. How many of you are thankful for a fresh start in this room? God is not just the God of the second chance or another chance, but he's the God of the 50th chance and the 100th chance and the 1,000th chance. And, and if you miss it, you can get back up again because you have hope of one who's already finished it and he ran the race perfectly. It's not about whether any of us are good enough because none of us are, but it's the promise of the one who was good in every way, never in any kind of way, broke the law of God, but fulfilled everything perfectly. And he became the sacrifice. The great high priest himself became the lamb, and he became the altar on which that sacrifice was slain. The lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Bow your hearts with me, please, this morning as I close this message. I just ask you right now, if you've never crossed the line of faith and asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart and your life, to change you, to transform you, to move, to heal brokenness, to set captives free, to, to break addictions, to bondage. He's able to do that this morning because 
He already has borne every sin for every human on the planet from the past, present, future. It's all washed away. God's not digging it up. It's been buried in the sea of forgetfulness. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed the record of our transgressions from us. And you know what? If, if God can't remember it, why are you digging it up? There's some folk in the room this morning, you need to forgive yourself. You need to take it to the Lord because the Lord's already forgiven you. Now, it's, it's, this, it's just this simple right here. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, you know what? If you will confess with your mouth, everybody say, say it. You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart about these bookends, this cross on this bloody cross on Good Friday, and this empty tomb on Sunday morning. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. It's that simple. There's nothing you do. You don't come in with a report card and a bunch of gold stars and say, look, God, everything that I've done. He, you know, he laughs at that because none of us can do enough. We are all sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Somebody says, well, you don't have to say it out loud. But I, I, you know, the Scripture says confess it with your mouth. So I just want to say to you right now, with every head bowed, every eye closed,